Um, I want to do two things this morning. One is, is I'm going to reread what Joan read for us uh, from Hebrews, but I'm going to read it in the King James Version. So some of you remember this passage in the King James Version. I think the King James Version uh, more accurately gets what's going on. And then I'm going to read uh, our second passage uh, from the English Standard Version, which is in the Acts of the Apostles. So let me begin. I'm just going to reread Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 in the KJV. Oh, and by the way, uh, this entire three verses is not even one sentence. In the Greek, it's just one long, winding sentence. And you, you'll see that when I get to the end of the reading, there's not yet been a period. So I feel like I'm, I'll be stopping in the middle. And, and the King James is very good at leaving that suspense. You need to read on through this chapter to get to, the, to your first period. So let me read for you. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty of God, colon. And then the sentence goes on from there. But that, that's enough for us right now. Now our second reading uh, is the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 22 through 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of all of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let us pray. Father God, it is by your Holy Spirit that the words of Scripture have been written down, uh, have been preserved through the centuries. We pray this morning that that same Spirit would be present here in uh, this room, uh, bringing to life these ancient words for us so that we might uh, hear from you this day. This we pray uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week I began uh, a series of topical sermons uh, on the on the doctrine of creation. We're going to be doing this, I don't know, six weeks or, or more. Uh, the, the title of this series is, In the Beginning, God, colon, How the Doctrine of Creation Changes Everything. I've become increasingly convinced that the doctrine of creation is foundational to all sorts of other parts of our understanding of our Christian walk. And I have concern that Christians have walked away from this doctrine, that they've been embarrassed by this doctrine, that they've not been sure what to do about this doctrine in light of the advances in the natural sciences. And so I wanted us to spend a good bit of time thinking about this doctrine. And last week, we actually started before creation and we, we took a look at a number of passages in the scriptures which give us a little insight into what God was doing before the creation. Of course, time and history begins with the creation, but before that, outside of that, God already was. So what was he doing? And the scripture does give uh, a number of pictures of this. In John 17, 5, we learn that uh, Jesus is present with the Father uh, since before the world existed. So we know that the Trinity is already there in place before there's a creation. It's important to recognize that God is a relational being uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each are persons, and they're persons who are related to other persons. Probably it's the case, and I'm sure this is 100% the case, that to be a person is to be in a relationship. If for some strange reason you you had been born or and dumped on a desert island someplace and never had contact with another human being, it's not clear that you'd become a person. You'd be some kind of animal, some kind of brute, some kind of savage. Uh, so to be a person is to be in a relationship, and we see God in a relationship before the world cre- was created. The second thing is, is that God is in a relationship, but this relationship has a very specific character. There are many kinds of relationships, uh, but the relationship that God describes in Scripture for himself is a relationship of of love, what he calls love. So here's uh, John 17, 24. This is Jesus praying to the Father uh, at the Last Supper. And Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, the disciples also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Okay, So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each persons. They're in a relationship amongst themselves. And that relationship is a certain kind of relationship. It's a loving 
relationship. Not every relationship's loving. Uh, and it's important for us to uh, recognize, in fact, how unusual this description of God is. Now, maybe we're used to hearing it, so we don't think anything of it. Um, but if you compare the story that we have in Scripture from what different pagan mythologies say about the relationship amongst the gods, you realize how uh, different um, Christianity and Judaism are. So let me begin uh, by talking a little bit about the Greek uh, creation myth. Um, it's presented in a work uh, that's called The Theogony. It's written by a fellow named Hesiod. Uh, Hesiod sort of compiled uh, the myths that were available and presented it in a, in a poem that told the, the story in a coherent way. Um, in, the, um, in the Greek uh, creation myth, the story begins with two gods. There's Uranus, who's the sky, and there's Gaia, who's the earth. One's male, one's female, and their husband and wife. And this, so the story begins with them. The husband and wife have 12 children who are the Titans. Um, and the youngest of the Titans is a fellow by the name of Kronos. And Kronos, at the behest of his mother, castrates his father. And in doing so, he replaces Uranus as the chief god. Okay, so Uranus was the chief god to begin with. His son castrates him. His son, his son Kronos castrates him. And then Kronos becomes the chief god. Okay, a very different relationship between father and son than you see between, uh, Yahweh and Jesus in the Bible. Okay, uh, then in the next generation, Kronos is now the king, and Kronos marries a woman or a goddess named Rhea, and they have six children, and the youngest of these six children is, is the god Zeus, and uh, as each one of these children is being born, Kronos uh, eats them, because he doesn't want to be supplanted by his own children, Okay? He has castrated his father and taken over his father's role. He wants to make sure that his children don't do that to him, so he keeps eating them. Ah, but, you know, the mother's a trickster, and she feeds him a stone rather than the last son, Zeus. And so Zeus is free. And Zeus does exactly what Zeus's father, Kronos, did. He starts a war against the father. All right? So, in fact, the Greek myth of creation, which involves relationships amongst the gods, is typical of most pagan, uh, I don't know of any exception, of pagan religion. There, there are gods, but they're not in a loving relationship. How is it that in the biblical revelation, there's a very different picture that's given. There are some people who will tell you, oh, you know, the first three chapters of Genesis, they're just, they're just a myth like all of those other ancient myths. Uh, and yet, when you compare it to all of those other ancient myths, it is completely different, and it's completely, completely unique. The, the next thing I would like to point out about what God was doing before uh, the creation of the world is that um, 
Oh, where was I going with this? Let me read for you uh, uh, a couple of verses from the prologue of the Gospel of John. We read this last week, very familiar passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now there's a lot packed into those few verses. But a few things here I want to lift up. First of all, Jesus is identified as the creator of the physical universe. Okay, um, All things were made through him. So the planet Jupiter was made through Jesus. The Milky Way galaxy was made through Jesus. All of the physical universe was made through Jesus. Secondly, in addition to making that physical universe... Uh, we also read in verse 4, in him was life. Now there's a big difference between the moon, which is lifeless, and something that's alive. There's a big difference between the sun, which is marvelous and huge and spectacular, but is not alive. All right? Uh, so, through Jesus, in Jesus, God makes the physical universe, but he also makes the living universe. Um, which is a, another level. Further, God, through Jesus, also makes reasonable or rational life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now that little phrase there, light of man, has to do with intellect and reason of man. It isn't just that we are alive like a chipmunk or like a dolphin. We are alive and we have the light of God. We understand things. We know things. And we, and we can have a relationship with God. So through Christ, the physical universe is made. And then in some part of that physical universe, there's also something that's alive. And then some smaller subset of the things that are alive, there are many different kinds of animals and plants, but only us has this light of God, the intellect and the reason, the capacity for freedom of will uh, and, and choice and, uh, and the ability to have a relationship with God. All of those things are uh, Im- embedded uh, in Christ. What I want to talk about today uh, more fully, and it's a difficult thing to talk about, and I was really struggling with it uh, in the first service, um, because it's a philosophical question, is the question of what what is God? Okay, it's one thing to say, you know, that he was there. Uh, we understand the physical universe, but what is God at bottom? The, the Bible gives us a lot of data about what God was doing. It's interesting to see all of those things that God was doing. But who is God, this God that created the world but himself was not created? Now, every philosophy and every worldview, and all of us have a worldview, whether or not we have are able to state it, has a general governing theory and certain fundamental assumptions about what the world is made up of, what the world is at bottom when you dig way down. Um, 
When you were in high school, you took chemistry and you were introduced to the periodic table of elements. When I was in, in, in high school, there were 106 of those elements. Now there's 118 of those elements. Uh, the understanding in the natural sciences is that everything in the physical universe is made up of those 118 elements. Take anything. You take the sun or you take a comet, or you take this pew, or you take a tree, and you can reduce it to its smallest parts, and those smallest parts are one of these 118 elements, or they're a combination of the 118 elements. Ancients had a similar idea. Now, they only had four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, but the theory was is that whatever you had was some combination of those elements. By elements we think, we mean the thing that is most primary and the most basic. So what about God? What is God at his most primary and basic level? It's an important question because Our answer to the question of what is God at the most primary and basic level will illuminate the question of what are we at our most primary and basic level. Now, there are a couple of views that are out there. I'm going to talk about three views. I'm going to talk about the biblical view. I'm going to talk about a view that is called scientism. And then I want to talk about paganism. Okay, so let's start with scientism. Scientism uh, is the uh, scientism is different than science, but scientism is the view that that science uh, exhausts all knowledge and that there's no knowledge outside of outside of the sciences. According to the sci- to the view of scientism, we humans are at bottom just some fancy combination of those 118 elements. We're just a bunch of chemicals in a sack, our skin. Okay, Uh, Humans are very clever, very complicated chemical machines. At bottom, what we are is just our chemistry. The the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines scientism as an exaggerated trust in the efficacy of the methods of the natural sciences applied to all areas of investigation, such as philosophy, social science, and humanities. My definition of scientism is that it's a quasi-religious belief that there are no truths beyond the natural sciences. Okay. Now, I, I think, by the way, that uh, Christians should be scientific. I think we need to uh, uh, understand the world... Uh, in an appropriate way according to according to the natural sciences but it's important to make a, di- <coughs> a distinction between scientific thinking and scientism at present the major alternative to the biblical world view is this world of is this view of scientism and i see joan getting me a little drink cuz i got something in there <coughs> Okay, so according to the Bible's description of God, what is God at bottom? Well, God at bottom is not going to be chemicals. He's not going to be, he's not made out of the elements on the periodic chart. 
but what is he? Um, according to scripture, at bottom, what God is, is person. Now this is a mysterious word. We ran into it uh, in our reading this morning from uh, 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 from Hebrews. Uh, the word in Greek is hypostasis, which means to stand under. It's the same uh, related to the word, the Latin word for substance. In Hebrews one three, uh, Christ is described as the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person, okay, of his person. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. So the the next question is, what's the difference between person or personal and chemical or physical? By a person, uh, in a sense, we all know what this means. We mean someone or something who's capable of free action. He can know things, speaks, thinks, plans, loves, has will, all right? Chemicals, on the other hand, the hydrogen and the helium in the sun are not actors. They're simply acted upon. They behave in a way that's determined by natural law uh, 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 as opposed to being free. Now, God as a trinity is personal. Each person in the trinity is personal. God has a personality. He has a certain particular character or shape to his free activity. God's character, the shape of his action, is called loving, truthful, just, merciful. There are different descriptions of the free action uh, of this person. Those descriptions are not the kind of descriptions that you would use for something physical or for something chemical. We're dealing with something else. God at bottom is personal. However we understand that, he's not chemical. Now, God's creation, on the other hand, is mostly chemical. When you look out there and you see those stars, they're just a bunch of burning chemicals. They're not alive. They're not persons. The sun is a big ball of hydrogen. Uh, the pagans think the sun is personal. Uh, but of course it's not free. It just operates according to natural law. The earth likewise is just a pile of chemicals. Um, uh, pagans, of course, uh, regard the earth as personal, which is why they talk about Mother Earth or Gaia. While scientism will try to reduce persons to chemicals, paganism makes the opposite mistake. Paganism tries to take things that are chemical and make them personal. So treating the sun or the earth as though it were a person. Well, what about us? We were born on earth. We live on earth. Uh, Our bodies are made of dirt. We know that when we die, we go back to the dirt and dirt, of course, is just a bunch of chemicals. Are we not, at bottom, just a complicated arrangement of a bunch of chemicals? Well, not according to the Bible. And, uh, yeah, not according to the Bible. Uh, according to the biblical view, what is most primary, what is most fundamental, what is most simple, is actually the personal God is before there's a universe, and God is personal. 
And then when God makes this universe, he as a person makes the universe and he makes the chemical. All right, He makes the impersonal, the chemical, the physical. God is personal without a body. He's personal without having molecules. He doesn't have any chemistry. He's fully who he is. His personality has not emerged from the chemicals. It was before the chemicals. When the Bible says that God, that, that God made us in his own image, it's indicating that we are a person like God. Now, oftentimes we think about the image of a person, of a human, and we're thinking about their body. It's got a certain shape. This body that you see, if you can, the, the part of me that you can see is chemical. My skin, you know, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen. This is, that's, that's all you're seeing. You're just seeing some chemicals. Alright? But to know me as a person is a different thing than to know me as a bag of chemicals. It's important for us to recognize that is that the personal comes before the physical or the chemical. God was before the physical universe was here, was here in place. Uh, the Apostle Paul actually gets at some of these things uh, in his discussion there uh, in the Areopagus. So the Areopagus uh, is, was a section uh, in the city of Athens where people would go, philosophers would go for a public debate. Uh, Athens at that time was the cultural capital of the ancient world. It's not the political capital at that time or the or the military capital, but it is the intellectual capital. And Paul goes there and he has a kind of debate with the philosophers in the in in the uh, uh, in the city of Athens. And he make, he has this observation. He's, he's he's walking to the Areopagus and he's walking past temple and temple and temple and temple. And of course, there's a you know there's a temple for each of the gods. Here's a temple for Uranus and here's a temple for Gaia and here's a, a temple for Diana and all of these. And and he notices one of the temples or one of the shrines is to the unknown god. Well, we ha- we've got all of these gods. We've we've given them names. We've uh, and but we don't want to make a mistake and leave one of them out. And so they even made a shrine to the unknown God. And so Paul says to them, you know, I notice that you're very religious. And then he says something that would not have made sense to the ancient Greeks. It makes sense to us because we're born into the Christian world, but I want you to hear it the way they may have heard it the first time. This is in verse 24, Paul speaking, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, or boss of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he need anything. The pagan description of the gods always is that the gods are part of the creation. Okay, the original Greek gods, Uranus, Gaia, are just heaven and earth. That sky up there, that that's Uranus. Down here, that's Gaia. Okay, so they're part of creation. The biblical view is that you know actually the creator's not part of this stuff at all. All of this stuff that we see, the sky and the earth, they're just a bunch of chemicals. You can reduce all of them to what's on the periodic chart, but God isn't that. He's He's outside of that, which is why he doesn't live in a temple. Which is why he doesn't 
need anything from us. The relationship of the pagans with their gods was a business relationship. The gods need certain sacrifices. They need to be fed. So you bring some little food to the temple, and then they're happy with you, and so they do favors for you. But that view of the gods is of two beings inside of the same universe. You know, one very powerful and one less powerful, but it's still inside of the same universe making a contractual business relationship. In the biblical view, God's just outside of the whole thing, which is why he doesn't need us, which is why we can't strike bargains with him. All right, He is not served by human hands because he doesn't need anything from us. Now that's the description of the physicalness, that God is not physical. He's not part of the physical universe. But he goes on a little further, since God himself gives to all mankind life and breath. Okay, so we were talking about creation earlier. There's kind of three levels here. There's the physical creation, all the chemicals. Then there's life. Okay? Man has never created life. They keep trying. Okay? They keep stewing up those chemicals in different ways, and maybe life will come up. Okay? Well, in fact, God created life, so they're not going to be able to do that. And then there's a third level. Okay, not only is there life, so there's there's the physical chemicals, and then there's the things that are alive, you know, like lichen and trees and, and dolphins. And then there's, oh my goodness, there's this special kind of life that has the light of God, that has reason. All of that is in God. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we humans ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver. Two of the elements in the periodic chart. Nor is God, this is in that same verse, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. Now, let me talk to you about one other competitor to the biblical view of God. And uh, I don't have one name for it, but uh, there was a German philosopher by the name of Ludwig Feuerbach writing in the 1840s. And he had this idea that everything that we believe about God is not really about God, but is a projection of our own thoughts and ideas onto the universe. So God basically becomes something we invent. We, we, we want there to be a God like this. And so we, we, we invent a big man in the sky with a beard who's kindly and does good things for us. Okay, so God becomes an invention of humankind. Feuerbach's work was uh, entirely absorbed by Karl Marx, uh, and and Karl Marx understands the work uh, of uh, of his of his uh, philosophy, his revolution, to be to eliminate the illusion of God from mankind's thoughts. Okay, so the, the theory here is, is that mankind creates religion uh, by just kind of externalizing their own desires and pressing them onto the universe. So let me read you a little bit uh, from Marx. The foundation of the criticism of religion is this. Man makes religion. Religion does not make the man. 
Religion is indeed the self-consciousness and the self-esteem of man who has not yet won through to himself or has already lost himself. Okay, Religious suffering is the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, the soul of a soulless condition. Religion is the opium of the people. Now his project is the abolition of religion. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. So if you stop pursuing religion, you'll actually start pursuing real happiness. To call them to give up their illusions about their condition is to call them to give up a condition that requires illusion. The criticism of religion is therefore in embryo the criticism of the veil of tears of which religion is the halo. The criticism of religion disillusions man so that he will think, act, and fashion his reality like a man who has discarded his illusions so that he will move around himself as his own true son. Religion is only the illusory son which revolves around man as long as he does not revolve around himself. So in the Marxist worldview, man needs to become the center of the universe. Religion, oh, that's just something that you know primitive people made up because they didn't know any better. All right, And we're so clever now that we are beyond having these childish illusions. And then so Marxism places uh, at, at the center man himself. Man becomes the, the, the sun around which, uh, uh, around which we rotate. There are th- basically three different models out there. There is the biblical model that God is outside of the universe and makes it. That God is primarily a person who then makes the 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 chemical world. Uh, There is the pagan view uh, that this world is actually alive and is personal. We reject that. The sun is not a person. And then there is this uh, Marxist view or this uh, scientism view uh, that religion is an illusion that we we have created. Um, I think it's good to name these alternative views so that we are not drawn into them seductively. Sometimes we believe what the world is saying uh, more than we realize. And I just want to encourage you to hold on to the truth of the gospel. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and adore you, and we thank you for uh, the testimony of the saints, and we thank you that uh, you are a person, and that you are a person who has revealed himself to us. And you are the person who has made us out of the dust of the ground and out of the living breath that you breathed into us and you gave us a mind so that we could actually understand you. And we thank you for those parts of you that we do understand. Lord, we look forward to that day when we will understand you even better. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.